Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You are listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast. And today we have on Vitaly Katzenelson, who is the CEO of uh, IMA. Vitaly, welcome to the show. All right, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so not only are you the CEO of this company, but you also wrote a book. You, you're also just a writer and you, you write a newsletter and write articles. Just for the listeners who don't know who you are, I think a lot of them probably do, but for people who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit more about you, your background, your career. Yeah, my family immigrated from Russia to the United States in 1991. So I lived in Denver for almost 30 years. So I got my undergraduate and graduate degrees in finance from CU Denver. Mm-hmm. Then I got my CFA and I've been basically working for IMA, which is an investment firm in Denver, as a as an analyst in 1987. And then I became chief investment officer and been a CEO for the last eight, nine years. Mm. And uh, I wrote two books. One was the Active Value Investing, and that one was published in 2007. And then I wrote the little book of sideways markets, which was basically active value investing simplified for a more wider audience for you kind of neighborhood dentist. So you, okay. you didn't have to be an expert to read an investment book. You didn't have to be a financial investment professional to read that book. Yeah. And I, in addition to, I also love, I said, in addition to investing, I love writing. And I write daily for about one or two hours a day. Mm. And that is how I think. So this is why I'm, be able to put out so much content. You said you about know, two hours a day you work at? Yeah, but about one or two hours a day. Two times 365 days a year, that's a lot of hours. And but so the, there, so we have, an, I have a very large like, email subscriber base. Basically, people subscribe to my articles. Mm-hmm. They get my investment articles. They get my father's art. They get classic. Yeah, I also write about classical music. So it's, it's a very uh, well-rounded newsletter. And in addition to that, I become a podcast and it's not, it's not, it's a lazy man's podcast mm-hmm. because what it is, we just take my articles and I have a tradition, tradition, uh, I have a, I have a professional narrator just read these articles to you. So it's basically a book and tape and my articles on tape kind of thing. So it's a, it's yeah. a, and my, they can find my podcast on investor.fm. And we'll put all that in the show yeah, notes too. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. But that's basically it's about me. Very cool. So I wanted to talk about, have a discussion about Uber ride sharing today. Sure. I thought it was very interesting. I, I You did a write-up on Uber, I guess it was in January 2020, and then you gave an update. And I thought it was interesting. The Traditionally, in the value investing circles, Uber would not be a company in most people's portfolios. I One of the things I've been trying to do on this podcast is not just have people come on and say, I like to buy stocks that are trading at 10 times PE or lower and good management, because people say all that kind of stuff, but have other ways of looking at value that we've had Marcelo Lima on before, who, who certainly looks at things uh, differently. I personally have talked about Trupanion, would not have shown up on a value screen. We've talked about Amazon on the show and Facebook. So I love highlighting companies where the valuation may not show up on a value screen per mm-hmm. se, but looking at it differently, there could be some value there. So I don't want to go too much onto this being a stock pitch or why you yeah. should or shouldn't buy the stock, but I think it'd be interesting to talk about the company, how you're looking at it, how you're valuing it, how you see the future and, and go from there. First of all, I have to say, did, did people think you were nuts? Like your investors think you were a little crazy when they saw Uber in their account? Yes. It's, <laughs> uh, it's like, like the original <laughs> article was a money manager kidnapped. Yeah. So, so, so I may manage separate accounts. And so the reason it's important because when, whenever you buy a stock, clients can see yes. what I bought for them right away. And it never has happened to us before until that time. I literally got four or five people reach out to me and say, do you just buy Uber? And it's almost was an implication is my dog doing the trade together. Vitaly, Vitaly, when I a couple of years ago I bought Amazon for yeah. uh, investor accounts and I got a few emails basically saying something along the lines of "Are you okay?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I almost 
And so it's, yes, yeah, so this is not a stock that you would, you would expect to see in the value manager's portfolio. The, but as you mentioned, the value does not have to be something that trades uh, low to price to earnings based on today's earnings. The value is basically something that's in the value, okay? Except you don't, like it's, in, but it may not necessarily show up on the immediate um, valuation matrix, but if the company's earnings will increase substantially over time, then you may discover that the stock was actually in the value today. You just did not know about this yet. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so the way we look at Uber is, uh, let me give you this framework. I yeah. call this what, who, and how much. Okay. And let's go through this kind of intellectual exercise. We are in 1987. The, this whole dot-com mania is happening. The internet will change the world. You just don't know how. You don't really know which companies will succeed, which one will fail. You don't know exactly the impact it's going to have, this kind of thing. So at that time, you, you look at this, all this change, and you say, okay, I can see this, but I don't know what to do, okay? Then let's say we fast forward to 2003, maybe 2004. At this point, that digital advertising will become a very big Internet will disrupt advertising, and the digital advertising will become will become very important. Yes, but at that point, you still don't know which company to better because there is Yahoo, there is Ask Chief, there is a like so much. I remember yeah. there was a website that I used to use around that time called Dogpile.com, and it would search all the different search engines because you didn't know which one would give you the hit that you want. Yeah, yeah, it was the search engine of search engines. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, exactly. So at that time, so you, at this point, what, right? In a sense, let me say you going to be changed. You just don't know which company to better up. So you know what is going to happen. Then the transition from print to digital. Okay. But you don't know who. Okay. It's like the, it's like but, in the early 1900s when you had two or 300 publicly traded car companies. You knew automobiles were the future, but you wouldn't have known who was going to survive and who was going to make it. That's exactly right. Oh, yeah. That's exactly right. So then fast forward to 2010, at this point, Yahoo, like a lot of the search engine companies already went out of business or became irrelevant, being the kind of became irrelevant. And now you really have, ignore Facebook for the moment, but really you knew at this point that Google became a verb. Yes. So you know, you knew, at this point you knew what, transformation from print to digital, you knew who. The question is, and then, okay, and then the question is how much? And this is where it gets difficult because Uber, you know, actually Google did not look particularly very expensive. It didn't look cheap either based on what the earnings you saw immediately in right. front of you. Okay. But then you said, okay, and I, if you look at the whole advertising market and you say, okay, I'm very confident that Google will be the one is, is, the, is the winner yeah. who will have a large portion of the pie. Right, which I think by 2010 was pretty obvious at that point, right? That Google. That, 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 yeah, yes. Yes. And then, and then, then you could have said, then if you went forward, kind of look at the size of the market, you realized Google earnings is going to be much, much greater. You don't see those numbers today, but fast forward five or 10 years, those earnings are going to be much, much greater. So the, the, I'm kind of, I'm using that as an example to present this framework. Mm -hmm. Again, what, who, and how much, okay? And, and this is the framework I used when we were analyzing Uber. Yeah. Okay. So what is in the past, if you think about it, in the past, sharing did not really exist. It was really taxes. Like, yeah. well, yeah. okay, so if you wanted to go from point A to point B, you had to make it a call to a taxi company, and at some point, taxi would show up. If you live in New York, you would go outside and there's a whole bunch of taxis waiting for you. But if you look at, live in the suburbia, getting a taxi was a very painful experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Then when Uber came, so when Lyft comes in, not Uber, and basically creates the right trade market, and then Uber comes in and beats Lyft at its own game and becomes this dominant con company Globally, I think I forget the number of countries. There are the 50 or 60 countries. I think it's like 62 or something. 60, yeah, something, yeah, something, exactly. Yes. It's a, so the, in the, in the 56, you know, like 62 countries. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And they dominate in every, like in almost every single market. 
Yeah. The only formidable competitor they have that has a semi reasonable market share is Lyft in the United States, which has Lyft has about somewhere between three and thirty-five percent market share, roughly, plus or minus a little. But the ride sharing, the ride sharing has basically created a brand new industry. Okay. So it's we, we don't take we don't do ride sharing now when like when like in the past we did it just from airports whole like with the way we took the taxi. Now ride sharing becoming a replacement of vehicle use. Okay. Yeah. So now that market is incredible. I really don't like when people use TAMS, Total Asset, you know, Total uh, Addressable Market. Yeah. Because in the, you know, if I use it for Uber, it's going to be in trillions, which is obviously over. That's obviously, that's too much. But the bottom line is that the market for, for ride sharing is enormous. And it's going to continue to get bigger because people will be get, people will at some point, not when you have three kids and a dog, but as you get older, you basically say, do we really need two cars? We can, can we have one car and Uber or yeah. ride share. Yeah. And I'm even thinking about globally, a lot, obviously in the United States, everywhere has the internet and cell phones, but globally, there's still a lot of the world that is not connect, connected through like cell phones. I think the countries where the Uber is, the you know, cell phone penetration, I would argue probably as high as it is in the United States today. Okay. But I think the, the adoption is still on the rise. And I'll give you an example. Like, sure. In Southern South Korea, Uber was banned you know, for a long time. In Germany, it was banned. And I think it's, you know, like in those countries, the so ride sharing, and, and the reason it was like, in the, and I, I can speak for Germany, I think their taxi lobby was, or union was so strong that they basically pushed out Uber. It's still banned in Germany, isn't it? I think it's coming back now. I Is think they, you know, they created the, the some idiotic laws that, and which I think they may be trying to reverse in Germany, that you basically, when you call Uber, the Uber driver has to be in a, a, certain, a certain central location. Okay. So another point, another point is like you drop somebody off, you have to come back to the certain, you know, to this central location, and then you can accept another call. If you think about, if you care about the environment, that's probably not something you want to do, right? You right. probably want to have the closest car to you picking you up. Anyway, but that's a yeah. Sure. Um, but anyway, but it's to me, it's a given that right sharing become only larger part of our society, you know, a part of our everyday life. Okay. Yeah. And so then the quick question becomes who, and the, like Uber, like in a, I think Uber, you know, the company that dominates this market will continue to dominate. And because there is a, it's a two-sided marketplace and it's a, so liquidity, your ability to get a car very fast, if you're a driver, basically you know, spending as little time as possible waiting for a passenger. And yeah. if you're a passenger to get in, you know, a, a ride as, as, as fast as possible, that's very important. And the more people you have on both sides of the network, the more the, the better that network becomes. Yeah. And it's also the more, the larger the network, the more data you have. And the for, therefore, the better you can make the experience because you can start telling drivers that usually during this time, this is where the demand is. And because you have more data, you can. It's one of the, it's one of these situations um, where the larger the company gets, the harder it actually becomes to break into the market because there's more data, there's there's more efficient networks. If I wanted to, if I had a billion dollars to compete with Uber, it would be like flushing money down the toilet at this point. That's right, absolutely right. Yes, yeah, and then many competitors have tried, right? and uh, yes, and that's yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, do you see Uber and Lyft maintaining? Uh, a duopoly status over time? Yeah, I think it's probably going to settle properly at today's levels. And I heard some data that Uber has been taking market share post-pandemic. Okay. But I, that's not my thesis. And I think they just yeah. maintain, it's probably going to be very similar. It's, Uber uh, Lyft is always going to be number two. Yeah. And it's just only going to get it better and better. Yeah. Go. No, no, you go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, so I was going to say the, like the question, like the, there are, let me, rewind a little bit. Sure. Like, let me explain. So let me explain to you why my clients had a, such a weird reaction of me about buying Uber. Like think about a year and a half ago, two years ago, you read almost any article written about Uber, the headlines talk about how, several things, how it's losing money, mm -hmm. 
like how losing billions of dollars, how the drivers are not making enough money, how there was some kind of incident where somebody got traped in Uber or whatever. Okay. So all these different things. So the company is always in the headlines for how it has a toxic culture, et cetera. So this started actually with toxic culture. So I think uh, Travis, who was Uber's, uh, like his first last name, Travis, who was Uber's first CEO, was the right CEO for Uber at the time. I think he was incredibly aggressive. Apernet or something like that, right? Yeah, 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 yes. And he was incredibly aggressive. And he basically built Uber into what it is today. Like that I would give him all the, you know, like he gets all the credit for that. Yeah. Because but if you think about Uber, like the uh, ride sharing by definition was an illegal business, right? Because yeah. they were basically competing with a monopoly, with a legal monopoly, which were taxes. So you had to have this cutthroat CEO to make, to build the Uber what it is today. Except the problem is when you, when a company gets to a certain point, that aggressiveness does not work anymore. Right, like I, rem- I remember stories when states would say, we're going to ban Uber and Travis would say, keep driving. He would encourage the drivers to keep driving and we'll pay your fine and all that kind of stuff. Yes. It, it takes a certain type of CEO to do that. Yes. And, and there, but I think the company's culture became too aggressive for a company of that size. So that's why Travis at that point had to go. And I think the board and CEO who I think has done a great job so far, mended the culture, mended the relationship between Uber and government entities globally. And I think, and so, so, that, so that was one change. Another thing is that, and this is, the pushback I get is how much money drivers make. And is that a fair wage? And if you think about Uber, right, in general, that is probably the most capitalistic marketplace there is, right? It's a, you literally have supply and you have demand. Right. The, if, if, the, you know, if the price is too high, there is less demand. And therefore, if, if the price doesn't adjust, you'll be sitting in, in second on your thumb if you're a driver. So there is dynamic price adjustment. Sure. I, yeah. think, I think the argument long-term, right, they just on the, the other side of it would simply okay. be, right, if, if there's people making either minimum wage or even, say, $5, $4 an hour, slightly below minimum wage, that over time, that's not sustainable. I'm not saying I agree yeah. with that, that but that's yeah. the argument on the other side. Yeah, I think the data shows that the wages are very different based on geographies. Yes. And and if you are in California, your wages, where there is a high density, your wages are usually much higher and you're making much more than minimum wage, you know, significantly more. Yeah. I think in the Hawaii, those numbers were even. Hawaii is $25 an hour, I think. Yeah, is, yeah. And that, and that was pre-pandemic. Now this number, now I'm sure it's a, you know, it's a great, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, but if you're like some of someone living in some flyover, uh, little town, the flyover country, where there's probably very little, well, very high employment anyway. Yeah. And very few, you know, and there are probably the wages there will be like lower. Yeah. Okay. But here's the point that's very important to understand. People are choosing Uber because we're working for ride sharing because they get flexibility. And that flexibility is incredibly important because if you are a student and you want to have a job where you drive, you have, you drive only when you have time, you can't, then you can't, like when you work on, when you have time, you can't really work at McDonald's so you can't really work at Starbucks, right? Right. Because you want to get the flexibility. A lot of people don't want to, want to work, you know, when, you know, in the time slot when they have time and Uber provides that. And the flexibility is valuable. That having that leeway to go in and out when you need the capital, that's worth something in and of itself. So you sh- rationally, you should be willing to get paid slightly less for that flexibility. Yes. And you have, and, I, and a lot of people probably would prefer driving a car and I'm generalizing than flipping burgers, et cetera. It's, I, think, I, think, I think the exception makes the rule to that. I think if you were to, Interv asked ten people. At least nine of them would say yes. Yeah, that's, that's no. So that's fair. So that's, yeah. So yes. So the and I probably over our last five years, I probably I've taken so many Uber rides. It's great. It's great. And I find that a lot of these people are making it. They're not forced into this. They're they're making a choice. Yeah. And by the way, the beauty of this, you can drive as much or as little as you want. And if you want to quit, just don't turn off, turn on your app. That's it. That's all you're going to do. And, and there's a lot of drivers too, if, if I'm 
not mistaken, where they just choose, say, they'll, they'll just work weekends or just Friday nights where they can make you know, $40 in an hour and then that's it for the night or something like that, right? A lot of them do part-time yeah. too. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a story and hopefully my son will not get mad at me. <laughs> okay. So my son is 20 years old and he, during the pandemic, he drove for DoorDash. Okay. And, okay. And him and his girlfriend went on a date and they arrived to a restaurant and there is a 30 minute wait. My son, my, my, my son says to his girlfriend, do you want to just go do a few door dashes while we wait? It's like fine together for, you know, they wrote, did a two or three uh, deliveries. Yeah. I made money for 30 minutes and then that paid for the meal. That nice. just, you know, <laughs> that's a, there is a lot of, there is a lot of value in that flexibility. Anyways, yeah. so that's what ride sharing brings, right? I'll tell you a story. Well, years, years ago, when I was in Omaha at a Berkshire Hathaway meeting, that we had a few hours to kill, or like they do the Q&A. Have you ever been to Omaha for a Berkshire meeting? Yeah, yeah, yeah every, okay. year, every year for the last 11 years, yeah. yeah. Oh, me, last 15 or something. So anyway, yeah. the so we're both veterans in that. You have the long Q&A and then we're so tired because we wake up early in the morning. You usually take a nap for a few hours, then we'd go for dinner with my friend. I decided I would pull out my, it was actually, I was using Lyft, but it was a ride sharing app and I pull out Lyft and I just go in my car because I drove to Omaha and I road share for two hours. I paid for dinner. <laughs> no, I think that's exactly right. So the, and so the last point was that, that it was a, whenever something happens, so let me give you this example. Uh, sure. Whenever there is like any kind of very violent car accident, the Tesla, you know, gets on fire. Like I remember watching the news where the Tesla was on fire somewhere in Moscow in Russia. And I was like, yeah, this was a last year. It was really from Denver. That was a like global news. Yeah. Well, you know, the, I promise you that Tesla's you know, get on fire a lot less than normal internal combustion engine cars that have a literally fuel tank in them. Right. And I forget the statistics now, but they're like the number of car, the normal cars get on fire is very large. Except when Lexus gets on fire, it doesn't make global news because- yeah, no, no one cares. It's Lexus. Yeah, no, no, but nobody cares. But Tesla is a new kid in the block. That's why it makes global news. So I would argue, unfortunately, I'm sure people get raped or there's crime habits sure. in- uh, Normal in the in the you talk to any cab driver and veteran cab drivers in New York City have usually been attempted to be robbed at least a few times in their career. Exactly. Okay. And Ubers are operated by normal humans. Right. With a rating system. With it, no, with a rating systems and actually exactly who picked you up, okay. because when you order Uber. And it says, John Smith is going to pick you up. He's going to give you white mail and you can see his picture and it's somebody else that's, there is something wrong here. He's a taxi driver. There is no way I would know the difference. Yeah. And, and also you can see where the car, like my, when my son was 16 or 17, his, all his friends had cars and he didn't. And we would allow him to take Uber, which actually now I know that wasn't really, we were breaking the rules. Yeah. Um, but I felt very comfortable with doing this because I could see where my son was on the phone. Like I could see, you be sure, you know, I could see where he was uh, while he was in the car. So anyway, so the, the point is that it's a, in, it's, a, it's, in a, it's a great improvement to whatever was there before. Yeah. And, and the last point about Uber profitability, and this point is very important to understand because it's going to become very important to our future discussion about what the company is worth. So when you think about traditional uh, kind of digital companies, think about Google, think of it for Facebook, they're mostly digital companies. Yeah. There is a, they basically, they have fixed costs and as the revenues grow and as, you know, they exceed fixed costs, the margins, you know, because expand. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then they have significant directional leverage. Uber, is both analog and digital. And this point is very important to understand, especially early in its life. They had to, for number one, they had to create a two-sided marketplace. And I, I have, a, uh, have an acquaintance who was one of the managers who brought Uber to a country. And he said, 
they literally had to pay drivers to sit and do nothing. While, so they created the supply while they were agreed. While they're working on building the demand. Exactly. Yeah. Just imagine how expensive that is. You're playing, we go into new market when Facebook decides to enter France well, after when they were already in, UK, in the United States. Yeah, there's no, there's no cost to that. Yeah, they just have to translate it from China. <laughs> right, that's it. Right. You know, yeah. that, okay, there you have to create a you know, decided marketplace that's very expensive. And so you get money. So, so whenever Uber ex expanded, they bled money. That's point number one. Point number two, they, at the time, there was a lot of competition. They had to fight off a lot of competition for market share. Okay. There was a, the venture capital markets were just throwing money at, at these markets. So there was a lot of irrational competition. We should talk, we'll just briefly talk about that too, yeah. because I think that has to do somewhat with interest rates and just money getting thrown at VCs. And yeah, yeah. No. So yeah, basically when you have very low interest rates and, and you have a lot of, and the market is so large, potentially so large, there's a lot of competitors that the venture capitalists get a lot of money. And they're basically giving money and say they grow, okay? And the only thing that matters at that point in time, how much market share you have. Not even how much revenue you have, how yeah. much market. And so Uber had to fight with dozens and dozens of competitors globally. And the only, you can't, at this point, you can't be rational. If you are rational in the rational market, you basically going to lose market share. Yeah. And once you lose market share, it's, it may be difficult to get it back. Okay, so whoever has the biggest balance sheet wins. Okay, and Uber basically has succeeded. And, and then something very important happened. This is the, you know, WeWork blew up. Yeah. Because and when WeWork blew up, the venture capital funding dried up as well. And so suddenly the competitors that were, they, we competitors went out of business. They couldn't have access to capital anymore. And the competition normalized. Uber's behavior and Lyft's behavior, like at the time, this is late 2019, if you read Lyft's conference calls, which we did, they were talking about how they would just follow where the price should be. So they stopped, they, now they were fighting for survival, like meaning actually becoming profitable because yeah. they knew yeah. that if they burn through the cash they have, that's all they got. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And. So the market suddenly normalized. And that's when actually, that's when we actually pulled the stock because mm -hmm. we realized, okay, so this is going to become a profitable business. They, you know, this is going to become a profitable business. So I guess the key is how profitable, right? How, how, do, you, yeah, how do you look at that? How much? Yes. And so the, oh, and one last thing about sure. the, the, the reason they were, when they went public, they booked this enormous loss of four or $5 billion. And that has to do is that they had a lot of options just to get invested. So that's the one-time deal. So, so you, there was a lot of bad noise going on. And this was the, this, you know, the media. If I'm a reporter, it's easy to write a negative story. It was, neg easy, it was easy to write a negative story about Uber than a positive story about Gets Uber. more clicks too. Exa exactly. Uh, no, absolutely. And so, but now if you look, if you stop looking backwards, look forward, you realize a couple of things. They, their analog part of the business is done. It's done and ruined. So they're at scale. They're in the markets where they want to be. And that uh, this course will not, you know, will be fixed, won't grow much. Okay. That's point number one. Point number two, and this is very important to understand, that as they grow and the revenue goes up, 50 to 60% of every dollar drops to the bottom line literally shows up in, in the bottom line. And that's, so in other words, a buffalo of revenue that every incremental dollar just goes to profits. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and the, oh, and that also, all that is actually also a little bit distorted by the fact that they have other businesses or they had other businesses um, at, diff at different levels of maturity. Okay. So. Yeah. And let me, I'm, I have a, a Slack keep popping up and I'm going to yeah. quit Slack and it's going to be gone. So it's sure, fine. no worries. Okay. So uh, different, different levels of maturity. So let me give an example. Uber Eats in 2019 was losing a lot of money. Had a lot of potential, but was losing a lot of money. They had 
self-driving car and D business that was losing a lot of money. They had a scooter business losing a lot of money. They had flying cars, I kid you not, R&D business. Mm. Oh, and they, they had freight, which is, I think they still have, and it's, they was still losing a lot of money. So pandemic- I think that's, I think that's an interesting business, the freight. I agree with you. Yeah. And we'll talk about it in a second. Yeah, sure. But the, but the pandemic was incredibly beneficial to Uber for a couple of reasons. Number one, it allowed Uber to cut costs tremendously. It's very difficult to cut costs politically inside a company when you're growing. Yeah. Pandemic gave them a chance to look at all the expenses and say, are we, did we get a little bit too fat and happy? And so they cut one quarter of the fixed costs during the pandemic. That's, that's the lead of one quarter of the labor force. That's, so that was important. They uh, folded the flying cars with another venture. They sold it to, the, they basically sold it to another entity, if I remember, and they got all ownership in that. So it's, it's a passive investment. Did something similar with self-driving. They sold, they sold scooter business to another company and got equity ownership as well. So basically, Uber today is basically three businesses. Ride sharing, Uber Eats, and Freight. So ride sharing business, let's finish the discussion and we'll talk about that one. So ride sharing business will come back stronger. And you know, it's coming back very strong. And it's most likely next year, it's going to be larger than it was. It's still probably at 80% of what it was, was uh, like in 2018. Next year, it's most likely going to be at 2019 level and high, then it's going to go higher. And that business can continue to grow at fairly high rates, 15, maybe the amount of this will be 10 to 20%, maybe even higher over a long period of time. Yeah. One important thing about the right share business is that it's more profitable on the gross margin outside the United States than inside the United States. And the reason for that is very simple, insurance. In the United States, Uber has to pay for the insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, the loans on the side of Okay. Yeah. So the more it grows internationally, the actually the larger contribution, gross margin contribution is to the bottom line. Where where do you um, where do you estimate what do you what numbers are you using to estimate growth rates? Obviously it's gonna be a very large it, range. It's, it's hard to predict, but how do you I, look at that? We it's very it's a very it's very difficult to say how how big it's gonna be, but I can say I can see Clearly that five years from now, it's going to be two or three times larger. It's easy. That's easy to see. That's easy to see. It's almost like to some degree, how, if you think about streaming music, it's in the beginning, it was used by enthusiasts and now it's everybody has subscription. I think at some point, ride share will become almost like utility. We'll be looking at ride sharing as to some degree, the same way you look at your phone bill. Okay, so like it's I could you know I'd be trying to do fancy math for this, and we realized it's just so incredibly difficult to estimate. But we don't you know at this price, I don't have to be precisely right. I could be right. Uh, I could be regular right. You can be precisely imprecise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. precise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's let's say at least two or three or four or five times larger, depends on your time horizon. Okay, yeah. in global, in the key point hit globally. Not just United States, but outside the United States as well. So that's a ride share business. The Uber Eats is a little bit more complicated. And this one, I'm still struggling a little. I think the I have less problems with that today than I had in 2019. And the reason this business is more complicated because unlike in the in the, in the ride share business, you have three parties. You have a driver, you have a passenger, and you have Uber in the middle. Yeah. In the Uber Eats business, you have four parties. You have a, uh, you, you had a uh, customer, you have a driver, you have a restaurant, and then you have Uber in the middle. And the, and the ticket item is rolled. So the, when we looked at Uber originally, we thought that Uber Eats, in the worst case, they'll shut it down and it's worth nothing. And in that case, in that case, then Uber is still going to make plenty of money on Uber. So it doesn't matter. Today, I would argue that pandemic has changed to create a new habit. And I can tell you this personally, I see, like I work in you know, an office building and I can see during lunchtime, a lot of people riding around trying to deliver. It's hard not to see that. Yeah, no, ex- exactly. And, and so 
but the pandemic has changed our behavior and it's most likely that us, it's, it's, you know, it's, that habit is not going to go away. Yeah. I don't think Uber Eats will be growing at the same rate as it's grown in the past, but according to management, actually in the last quarter, despite opening or you know, the company been, you know, been opening and the restaurants are open, Uber Eats business still is still growing. Okay. Yeah. Now yeah. the question is how profitable it will be. And so a couple of things. So there's a very good competitor for Uber, you know, in that business, DoorDash. And this is the irony of this. DoorDash has a market cap of $60 billion and Uber has a market cap of 90. And DoorDash is, I forget, in one or two countries. Like it's United States and maybe a few other countries, I forget. But it's basically DoorDash, which is basically just Uber Eats of Uber, which has a similar market share, maybe a little bit larger. Basically, almost has the whole market cap for Uber. So I think this, you know, so the, I think the way Uber will make money in this business, a couple of ways. Number one, I think the, you're going to see a lot more money being made than advertising. Because when you go to the app, you know, the restaurants will start paying for the placement in that app. That's a hundred percent margin. So yeah. hypothetically, even if just Uber eats breaks even on the delivery, Advertising could become a large source of growth, a uh, large source. Nice. Another thing is that the better, what, what I started seeing in, on my Uber Eats app is that now they tell you, do you want to pay dollar fifty more for more urgent delivery? So they started figuring out a way to, uh, to monetize it better. And I think at the end of the day, the, the liquidity get better. If you, if a driver shows up at the Chipotle, and they give you three burritos to deliver two, three houses next to each other. Therefore, everybody wins, right? So the better they can, the better they can handle logistics of that, the more likely the cost will decline and, and they, and everybody will benefit from this. So I was still looking like we wouldn't be at volume Uber today. I, I can still not put it much value on Uber Eats because I don't have to at the today's price. Yeah. But yeah. it's most likely it's, it's worth a lot more than it did in 2019. In addition to that, and I think we'll, we'll get to Uber Freight at the end, but in addition to that, there are a lot of adjacent, like Uber, if you look at Uber, it's a lot, it's really just a logistics company. It's really, it's just, it's almost like it's an AI logistics company trying to match how, what's the easiest way to get something from point A to point B. That's exactly right. And therefore, that's why like the, Total asset, uh, total market size, it's very difficult to estimate because what's the logistics size, you know, right. what's the logistics in our kind of global economy. And so they, there's, you know, they're going to do alcohol deliveries. They bought drizzle for that. They're not delivering packages. They'll be delivering groceries. So there's a lot of like, so the, this is where the value, them having logistics, you know, being very good logistics becomes a very important skill. And also though. Coming back to Uber Eats, there's a synergy between Uber Eats and, and ride sharing because so they, they've have, they're, they're going to have a prime, like they have an Uber pass right now, which is not very good. And I, on the last call, Darren was talking about how they're improving that. And there's a lot of synergy between Uber Eats and the ride sharing because you can basically pay $20 a month and get discounted both. And you, if you use one a lot, if you want, could subsidize the not and vice versa. So that is very synergistic on this side. Also, if you are a driver, you may be, and there's not much demand for driving people around during lunchtime, you can do where it is. And in the evening, you can do more ride sharing. So the, you know, for a driver, it's a better utilization as well. Okay. So the, anyway, so there's a lot of adjacent, there are a lot of adjacent markets and Uber is really a logistics company. So that's, that's important, very important. And then you have Uber Freight. And I think that business is a incredible call option as well, that because Basically, freight market is incredibly fragmented. I forget, I think the largest company in the space has a three or five percent market share. It's a very, it's like there's a hundreds and hundreds of solvents of mom and pops with a trailer. Yeah. And right now, this is a lot of like a fax machine and a phone call kind of market. Yeah. And Uber is basically digitizing, you know, is digitizing this market. And, and just by bringing better logistics, they can create value for everybody because I'll give an example. Like, because a lot of times if you are, if you're a driver, you took a trailer from Denver to Omaha 
and then what? Then you may have to go to Kansas City to pick up another one, and another load to go somewhere else. If Uber can provide you load from Omaha to Kansas City, and then from Kansas City somewhere else, so you can, you know, and you can actually figure out that you can input, okay, I'm in Kansas City, I'm in Omaha, I want to be in Denver at this point in time, and they will match a load with you. I think that is, inc they, there's an incredible amount of volume they can provide for everybody. Yeah. And uh, so that market, that market is ripe for disruption. And I think Uber will be a very positive force in there as well. Yeah. Now, I guess the one threat that some investors might be concerned about is self-driving cars and autonomous driving. Yeah. And I think so. The, it's, I think that's a very, that's probably the threat I'm confused about the most. Okay. okay. And let me tell you my thinking on this. Sure. I wrote this 11, I don't know, 20 page email series, which turned into a little book on Tesla. Okay. And, and so I'll give you a little background on this. I bought Model 3 in June, 2019, and I was blown away by the car. And I ended up just doing a lot of research on this. And one thing I realized after doing all this research, that self-driving or, you know, the complete self-driving is much further away than everybody thinks. Mm. You know, because you know, it's for logical and psychological reasons. Number one, on the, and, I, and I can tell you based on my experience, in the perfect weather, when the roads are well divided, on the, especially on the highway, the Tesla, which has you know, one of the most advanced self-driving systems, is phenomenal. Whenever you start introducing difficulties, suddenly it stops being very good. So I'll give an example. Sure. Whenever there is, there is construction, it basically stops working. Whenever, when it's raining and sensors get clogged up, self-driving is not working, period. Shuts off because it's, it's based on cameras and cameras you can't see. Whenever, and, that, and, then, and then there's a lot of edge cases where it's just, it becomes dangerous. So I'll give you one example. When you're driving on the wavy road, and there is no intermediate, a few times it almost took me into incoming traffic. In other words, the, the world waves, and instead of staying in the right lane, it's, it's misidentifies and sees incoming traffic late as the lane where you want to be. So this is just my experience with Tesla. But the, the bottom line is, just now think about this. As a regulator, you're going to, the one who approved self-driving, you're going to be, you have everything to lose and very little to gain. So it's going to take you, they're going to make sure that the self-driving is better than human. Like they make fewer mistakes, substantially, you know, substantially fewer mistakes uh, than humans before they proved. Yeah. Okay. I think just, and this is maybe a side discussion. I think self-driving is a good as in assisting of preventing accidents and helps me. But I think full autonomy is far away. So this is a conversation. We are not talking about next three years, next five years, probably 10 years after before it gains any kind of acceptance. You know, like, like before we have it, because I've seen a lot of cases of that. Just remember Uber had one self-driving accident in Phoenix and that's basically killed the whole program. So even though I'm sure there's hundreds and hundreds of people that in Phoenix, from being run over by cars, you know, right. you know, but nobody, you know, nobody writes about it. So the reason I'm conflicted about it, because if you have the largest network of passengers, then you can, you, you could argue that you can add self-driving to that network and you're going to have a mix because just realize also self-driving does not become overnight. Right, because right. you still we have 150 or 190 million. I forget how the number 150 million cars in the world today. So they will won't become self-driving right away. So you can, if you're Uber and you have the largest pool uh, supply of passengers, and you have, I can see how Uber will be able to add self-driving cars onto the network and or competitors. But I'd say still most likely going to be Uber operated network. So they they still be the switchboard. That, make, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, it's a still a digital switch. And, and then, if any, and then if anything, you don't. If that does happen at that point, they have such a gigantic network that 
then their costs come down because they don't have to pay drivers anymore. That's right. And it's, so the and another, another point I want to make, we kind of underestimate progress and overestimate it. In other words, like this is this comes from my research about Tesla. Okay. Is that I, to me it's clear that electric cars are the future. Okay, no yeah. question about it. And we have one test, we're going to get another one in a few weeks. But at the same time, we overestimate how much time it will take. Yeah. When you have a, a 150 million cars on the road, it's going to be a long time before, they, and still 95% of sales today are non-electric cars. It's still, going, it's still going to take a long time for electric cars to become a meaningful number of, as a percent of total cars on the road. Yeah. So it's the same thing with self-driving. Even when it comes, it's still going to be very, it's going to be very slow adoption. And then, so it's, it doesn't thread load far away, but, in, and I think also it's going to give Uber time to adapt to that too. Yeah. So fast forwarding, say five years from now, have you, again, precisely, precisely, imprecisely, essentially yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, modeled out, okay, what, what do I think there's a range in terms of what I think Uber is going to make in five years from now? Yeah. So I think we, our low case earnings about three dollars. Okay. Okay, and that still has no contribution from Uber Eats. Okay. And and and, and a kind of and a more high, you know, kind of base case, like more like a five dollars. So three dollars would be what kind of growth rate over five years? Let's see. I think that was a either twelve or fifteen percent growth. Okay. This is this is just to number. This is from a twenty nineteen low. Got it. So I'm just kind of the baseline is twenty nineteen pre pandemic. Okay. Uh, and uh, so pandemic to some degree pushed our, our assumptions two years out to some degree, mm-hmm. yeah. On, but then it's also accelerated some things because the costs are lower and Uber Eats is, and uh, by the way, Uber Eats right now is profitable according to the company in many, in the, in many markets outside of the United States. Just, you know, just, okay. So, so uh, you see your low end, so low end, $3, and then $5 was the base case? Yeah, yeah it's a basic kind of base case, yes. Okay. It, and yeah, then it's, the, a, it's a vaguely, you know, it's a, could be four fifty. Of course, yeah. I mean, these are very... Like, it, I, I, like it, I, I, this is the analysis you do with crayon. Yeah. Like, not a, I, yeah, I don't have a very sharp pen, pencil, but it's just when you deal with something so disruptive, something that's growing so fast, like it's the crayon analysis, but the bottom line is this, as a value investor, like the rule, like my rule number one is not to lose money. And I think at this price, again, this is not an advice for anybody to do this. I'm just sharing a way to think about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to lose money in the long run. It doesn't mean the stock price still going to get cut in half. Sure. You know, in in the interim, it's, oh, especially with a company like Uber, there there probably will be times over the next ten years where the stock does get cut in half. Oh, absolutely, and that's and that's just the nature of the game. Yeah, but I think as as if you look at risk as a primary loss of capital, I think that risk now is basically off the table. Yeah, and it, then what was what was your like bu- uh, like a very bullish scenario for earnings in five years? So it's difficult to see just because then Uber Eats comes in. Yeah. It starts. I almost don't have to think about it yet. Yeah. You could also you could also say what other businesses do they create that you haven't even thought of yet too. No, that's right. right? There's a, yeah, and there's a lot of optionality. I think they. I think that that's really like when I look today, I don't have to be very smart. Yeah. Because there's just so much like at this price, only one business has to do well, which is for me to make money for one money, which is ride sharing. Yeah. And then package deliveries, alcohol deliveries, Uber Eats. Uh, uh, freight business, all of them are just options. Yeah, and I think this is their options. There are going to be very meaningful when you know, when they if, if they play out. I mean, will all of them play out? Yeah, but for this to work, this right. that's how that's how I look at this. But I think that's smart. I, I think that's a smart way to look at it because you can't if you try to get too precise in modeling how each business lies, you're going to be wrong. You're going to you're going to be you're going to overshoot some things, undershoot on some things. I, I think the way you're looking at it is it's actually very smart. It's a false, like, I don't want to have a false precision and I have yeah. to understand just because then I can take a number and extend it to five decimals. <laughs> it doesn't make this right. company, yes, then it's way for those two decimals over just, you know, no decimals. You could discount it over 20 years of earnings and you, you alter your uh, your discount rate by 1% and it's going to totally change the valuation. That's, That's right. It's hard to do that. 
Yeah. And I think the key here is that you realize that this company is the hope. In other words, I think they, it's very unlikely they'll be, you know, displaced. I like, there's probably a chance that they will get displaced in maybe one particular market or something, but right. overall, globally, it's very unlikely they will be displaced. Yeah. And you know, essentially you're betting, right? Look, if Uber ride sharing somehow got displaced, then yeah, the thesis completely breaks and Uber is overvalued. The margin of safety is this network that they've built. And if you look at, again, the growth rates and 12% growth rate to be, it's, it's, I would be very shocked if they only grew 12% a year over the next yeah. five years. So I think that for some people in the value investing community, this way of thinking, I, I, people have been so ingrained and in just like looking at a multiple and if it's you know above this thing and I can't do it. What's interesting is that if you talk to someone, say who was in college or fresh out of business school and you explain this to them, I think it makes common sense. I think that people have the hardest time getting this are mm-hmm. people who have been studying Benjamin Graham for 30 years and have a harder time thinking this way. But I think that you, here, here's my thoughts. I could be totally wrong, but this is just from my personal point of view on this, is that everyone has access to stock screeners today. You look at some of these value screens and the a lot of these value screens have, have significantly underperformed the market for many years now. And you hear people saying, well, there's going to be a reversion to the mean. Value is going to, re- you know, there's, Values has going to have its day, but you got to look at, well, what do you consider value? I think a lot of what now shows up in screens is actually cheap for a reason and often overvalued. So a lot of these undervalued companies are ones that don't actually show up on a screen. And if you look historic, like if you look historically, you go to the early 1900s and all that really mattered was book value, right? You have a railroad company or an oil company. But then you go to the companies, say, like when Procter and Gamble or, or uh, Clorox, where you have brands, and it wasn't just book value anymore. And people like Buffett understood that, and you could say their edge was that people just looking at book value missed some of the big brand companies. I think the next sort of the next evolution of that is these kinds of companies where you have these platform companies, these companies that have networks, have scale. And these are these kinds of companies have never existed in the history of humanity. So if you look at finance books, there's no model for this. And I, I think that looking at these kinds of companies, if with this kind of thinking, you can have an edge because the screeners don't show it. I, 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 agree, I agree with you. And I, I would hedge it a little bit. Sure. I, I think it's, I try to be nuanced in my thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of truth to what you said. I, mean, I agree with a lot of things. And I think it's easy to take a good thing, take a good thing too far. Yes, In other yes. words, we say uh, the book following doesn't matter. The price turning doesn't matter. I'm not saying, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. No, I know. I know. Okay, okay. Okay. But my point is, then you have companies where you say price follows, what you pay doesn't matter. You see, so with Uber, we figured out that it's a with the more conservative assumptions being like, and then everything else is this incredible externality. And then you have some of these companies that trade this, like, even if I look out five or 10 years out, they have such a heroic assumptions that even if sun shines 365 days a year, yeah, you're still not going to make money. So it's so the, and then, so my portfolio, our portfolio is very eclectic. So if you want Ubers, but we also own companies that are turnarounds where today's earnings may be obfuscated by some other issues yeah. that are like, they will be considered to value comp. Oh, I get it. Vitaly, I, 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 I own Amazon Trupanion and then I also owned a tiny little micro cap trading below liquidation value. So exactly. Again, exactly. No, yeah, and I think it, and I think, no, 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 that's, that's a good point. And you know, I just want to, you know, no, I, think it's important. Is that I think you have to be nuanced in your thinking and you need yes. to know which framework, like what, who, and how much framework probably should not be applied for some, like, well, most of the companies. This is a, this is a, a unicorn framework. In other words, there are very few companies that are like that because there are very few markets that have been disrupted to the same degree as right sharing. Right. right. And if you look at, and if you look at markets that are, you could say probably are going to be disrupted or being disrupted, it doesn't necessarily mean that's where you should invest if you can't, if, if it's not. Okay, I think what you're talking about there's actually a way to have a framework around it to take some take the unpredictable and put some precision to the in, to to the imprecision. But there's a lot of industries where I think you can't do that, or at least I don't know how to do that. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give you this example. Okay? Sure. To the, the other 
complete extreme of Uber that we all, uh, okay. the company called Curate. And I curate is basically the have two businesses. It's run by it's run by Greg Maffei, John Malone. They're kind of the large shareholders and capital allocators there. Yeah. It, they own QVC and HSN. If you think about it, this is probably as as modernized groups, except the other kind of like the this is we looked at this for a long time and did not buy it until last year when they said that when Greg Maffei said we're gonna start returning all our cash flows as dividends. Okay, and I just want you to think about it for, for a second. Yeah. This is a company that earns about two dollars fifty to three dollars or two fifty to three dollars of cash flows a year. We're buying it for ten dollars. Yeah. And and the and it's has been like it's actually has grown for a while. Then it had a couple of difficult years where it declined one or two percent revenues declined one or two percent. And, and, and it, it actually grew during the pandemic because when people like actually expanded this number. Of sense, yeah. Because, yeah, because like, it, you know, kind of shopping and TV became a new source of entertainment. But the point is we did the work and we ran different analysis and we realized that it's going to be possible for us to lose a lot of money. Just because if you receiving this money as dividends, yeah, then I'm reducing my capital at risk with every dividend. So just fast forward a year, up to this point, we bought it for ten dollars. We received seven dollars and twenty-five cents. <laughs> okay, so yeah. so so at this point, I have very little capital. Like it's very little capital at risk, and I think the there is a there is a there is still case to be made. Is that when when people stop watching, or is a number of people that watch real like normal TV declines, and more, but more people watch TV on Roku and Facebook, etc they'll be there as well. So it's not like their company and still. So I don't know. Here's the, I have no idea what's the rate of decline is, but it's not going to be more than two or 3% a year. Even if at five or 10, like as long as they're around for more than another year or two, I already got most of my money out. That, and that is just pure optionality. And God forbid they actually become as a slightly growing company and you get a 10 times time multiple, it's a $30 stock. Yeah. Look, and, I think this... Go, sorry, go ahead. No, this is, and I think this is to my point that you have to be nuanced in your thinking and know which funnel to apply when. Yeah, and I think this speaks, this kind of goes back to value, like the art of value investor, right? There's the craft, there's the accounting, there's looking at the financials, but the art form is understanding there are frameworks, there's ways to think about things, but you're going to think about company A and company B differently. Every company is different. It's made up of human beings of different, even different personalities, different business models. And no two businesses are exactly the same. Even two oil companies might have new, very subtle differences. So I think it, it, it speaks to that if you just have one framework and you get attached to it, you can actually start getting delusional about reality if you don't, if you start thinking too black and white about things. So to sum up what you said, if you only framework price to book, yeah, you're probably not going to work. That's your future is probably not very bright. Yeah, you're going right. to have a rough time. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's right. And I think that's and I think that's to sum up your point is that you need to be able to have different frameworks and realizing the price to book may be good for when you value banks. You know, it still works, right? Yeah. But it's not very good when you value companies that have a lot of intangible assets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Well, I think that's a I think that's a good place to to end this here. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, this is, this is great. It's, it's great great to chat. I've been a fan of your work for many years. It's actually a real pleasure to connect with you. Thank you. You have a good podcast. Thank you. Thank thank I, I coming from you coming from you that actually means a lot. So I really appreciate that. For people who want to read your news, obviously I'm going to put everything in the show notes. But for people who want to read your stuff, what's the best place to find you or listen to your podcast? I'll give you three layers. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So to listen to the podcast, either look for the intellectual investor or go to investor.fm. To read my articles, subscribe for them, go to contrarianedg.com. You can read them there or you can subscribe for them. And I, I would recommend you to subscribe because you get so much more. Mm. And finally, like you guys spend a lot of time talking about value investing. Yes. And I wrote this, I was working on this book. And I didn't finish the book, but there was one chapter that became, it was very good, where I basically described what volume investing is. Mm. 
and it's called uh, Six Commandments About Investing. So if you go to sixcommandments.com and spell out six, S-A-X, sixcommandments.com, uh, then you can download, you can get this chapter there. And it's really, and it's a, probably the best, one of my best writing on volume investing periods. Awesome. All right, we'll get up, shoot me an email. We'll, we'll put all that in the show notes. And it was great to have you on, man. Absolutely. Thank you, Eric. Really all right. It. Me too. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.